ESPN Radio. It's Amber Wilson and Chris Candy on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. We are presented by Progressive Insurance. Hit us up on Twitter at AmberW790 and at ChrisCandy99. And as always, tap in on the Candy call in line, 888-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. With the New York City mayor rolling back the vaccine mandate for the private sector for athletes and performers, does that make the Brooklyn Nets the team to beat in the Eastern Conference? To get the betting perspective on that and more, we welcome in ESPN sports betting analyst Aaron Dolan onto ESPN Radio. And Aaron, that's the news of the day in the tri-state area, the fact that Mayor Adams is going to allow Kyrie Kyrie Irving to be a full-time player for the Nets. And so how does that impact the Brooklyn Nets' title chances now, seeing that he's going to be available for the rest of the regular season and for whatever Mm postseason run they go on? Well, the odds makers were always basically factoring in the fact that Kyrie Irving would be able to at some point play play at home. So I don't think it's a situation where you're suddenly getting way worse odds. For me, I still think I, I just I can't buy into the Brooklyn Nets. It's kind of the same old story here. I mean, they have a tough strength of schedule down the stretch, and I feel like the narrative around KD and Kyrie, they're godlike when they're on the court together and they can win no matter what. That's just not true because the Brooklyn Nets defense is just they're atrocious. Their defensive rating is 22nd on the season. It spikes to 26 in the past 15 games, so it's progressively getting worse. I will say when both of these players, of course, are on the court, they have a better net rating with those two. It's plus 15.9, which is nearly twice as good as the Suns' net rating, and they're first right now in the NBA. But the Ben Simmons debacle is still going on. We're not sure if he'll even step onto the court. Joe Harris is out. And you just can't lose to a team like the Memphis Grizzlies without their star player, John Moran. I mean, I know that's a small sample size, but – these lines, they've been factoring in that Kyrie was going to play, but it's really a matter of if you think the Brooklyn Nets could actually go on to win the East. I personally just think there's too much going on with injuries and just many unknowns surrounding this team. So, Aaron, Kyrie's availability has been the big breaking news over the last 24 hours in the NBA. We also had huge breaking news in the NFL, the blockbuster deal between the Chiefs and the Dolphins, which sent Tyreek Hill to the Dolphins in exchange for five draft picks to the Chiefs. What has this done for the futures now for both the Chiefs and for the Dolphins? Yeah, this was a huge trade. Um, There's something I was not expecting when I saw, you know, the ESPN notification pop up on my phone. But in terms of odds for the Dolphins, for the Super Bowl, they moved from 70 to 1 down to 50 to 1. For the AFC, they moved from 35 to 1 to 25 to 1. And then in the division, they moved from plus 675 to plus 450. This is to be expected when you get a player like Tyreek Hill. But this is not, I would say, markets that I'm willing to personally put money into. The AFC is one just so stacked. And also in that division, you still have the Buffalo Bills, which are an amazing team. And I'm happy for Tyreek Hill. I mean, his contract is out of this world, the amount of money he's going to be getting paid. And I don't think it's a bad fit to be going to, you know, a quarterback like Tua Tunga Viola. Hopefully I'm saying, still saying that last name properly. Um, but, you know, he's. <laughs> He's going to be successful there. And as for the Kansas City Chiefs, I mean, their odds have been bouncing around all over the place, just given that that Russell Wilson trade happened as well. So they were minus 175 to win the division earlier this month, and now they're at plus 175 to keep moving back. And that's the longest odds we've seen for the Chiefs in that division since 2018. So when you're looking at that, you're seeing, wow, this is really a division that's currently now wide open. And I think this is definitely going to be the one that's the toughest and one that everyone continues to talk about that AFC West. 
Talking with ESPN Sports betting analyst Aaron Dolan on ESPN Radio. And Aaron, we got the Sweet 16 tipping off tonight. And just looking at this weekend in college basketball in the NCAA tournament, are there any plays that you like? Yeah, one that I'm looking at is Texas Tech Duke under 137. This is the highest total posted for Texas Tech since January. And for those that don't know, Texas Tech has the best defense right now um, in the nation. Uh, they're ranked first in adjusted defensive efficiency on Kempom. They're holding opponents to 61 points per game. Duke, they can go out and score, but they haven't faced a defense like the Texas Tech Red Raiders. So I do think we're going to see an under game in that tonight. Um, for a player prop, I did want to mention, because most of the time you don't see player props available on the sports book, but now that we're at the C-16 level, you do. I like uh, Michigan's Hunter Dickinson to go over 18 and a half points. He's hit this in four of the last five games. He just put up 27 points on Tennessee, and they're a top three defensive team at the time. Nova does play at a slow pace, uh, but at the same time, they're ranked 29th in defensive efficiency, and they just don't have somebody to match up with a player like him. He's also averaging 21 points in the tournament so far. So I do like him over 18 and a half points. And then this is kind of, a little bit controversial. Everyone's kind of been coming at me for this one, but I love Houston Moneyline tonight. Houston ranks in the mm. top 10 in both offensive and defensive efficiency. They've won 11 of the last 12 games. They're holding opponents to 60 points in six of those 12 games. But Arizona's got a major turnover issue. I don't know if people are talking about it, but 64 total turnovers in the last four games. Meanwhile, the Cougars rank third in the nation in steals. They're going to attack that. So although Arizona's also streaking, they did need that overtime win over TCU to advance. And their defensive numbers have just been slipping the last two months. So some people are confused by Arizona's even favoring this one. So I'm going to go Houston Moneyline tonight. Aaron Dolan, ESPN sports betting analyst on with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty here on ESPN Radio. So, Aaron, let's talk about uh, the the MVP in the NBA because this race has had a lot of change with Embiid and Giannis and Jokic. And has John Morant mm-hmm. entered the conversation now? Where do we sit right now with the NBA MVP? Yeah, so at this point of the season, there's not many games left. So considering that Embiid's minus 150, he's probably locking it up at this point. Philadelphia is second in the East. Then you have Jokic, a plus 130, with Denver six in the West. So we've kind of been talking about over the last, I would say, since probably January, uh, this race between Embiid and Jokic. And you have Giannis also up there. He would He's plus 900. Those odds for him keep moving back, which tells me that they don't think he'll be able to lock that up. Milwaukee third right now in the East. But at this point of the season – you kind of start to see a player like Embiid will start moving out. Yes, there's other players and shooting guards that are going to have standout games that have great uh, stretches of shooting down the stretch that maybe make you think that, you know, a player could win MVP, but they really look overall at the entire season. So at this point, I do think Embiid will probably lock it up. Well, Aaron, we appreciate a few minutes of your time. Thanks for getting us all sorted out on all of the betting action that's coming up. Appreciate it. Of course. All right, that's ESPN sports betting analyst Aaron Dolan on ESPN Radio. And Amber, it feels like the MVP race for the NBA is is Joel Embiid's to lose, right? I mean, based on what she's saying, the current odds uh, for the top three favorites, it seems like it's going to be Joel Embiid holding up that trophy, barring something unforeseen over the course of the next couple of weeks. So that would be a huge step in his career, but the matter, the question is whether or not Daryl Morey did the job in bringing over James Harden. Is that what's going to push this team to title contention? I think that's a serious question that in the aftermath of the trade, I felt a little more confident about as opposed to where we are now with the Philadelphia 76ers. 
I think that some people were concerned that with adding James Harden, it would actually take away from Joel Embiid's season because he's been having an MVP caliber season all season long. And in recent months, this has really come down to like a Jokic and Bead type race, which is, hey, exactly what last season came down to yep. as well. Joel could have easily won it last season too. Now, Jokic has been phenomenal. He's been phenomenal this season. He was phenomenal last season. He got it last season. I'm happy to see that Embiid might be in a position to get the respect that I think he's due this season. Harden didn't destroy that, but we'll see what it actually looks like in the playoffs to see if Harden can step up to the plate and help Embiid win an actual title. Yeah, we got to actually see something that we've never seen from James Harden before in the postseason. That's what makes it hard to have any confidence from it, right, Amber? Confidence comes from demonstrated performance, and James Harden definitely has not done that once we've gotten to the NBA playoffs. So the spotlight will be on him, and especially with the Brooklyn Nets now adding Kyrie as a full-time player. Remember, Amber, when they made this trade, I didn't say that the Philadelphia 76ers had to absolutely win a title, but they for damn sure had to do better than the Brooklyn Nets. And I'm not quite sure that with Kyrie Irving as a full-time player, this Sixers team is going to be capable of being able to do that. That's remarkable. Considering we're talking about the Nets sitting in the eighth place and the Sixers in the second place in the East, that's a remarkable conversation. Call me crazy. You might might not not be wrong. I'm just saying, call me crazy, but that's how I feel about it today. Coming up next, we got an update on the latest with Deshaun Watson and whether he'll face new criminal charges. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canney, ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. The Cleveland Browns are trading with the Houston Texans and acquiring quarterback Deshaun Watson. I know that my Browns finally care about winning. That's all we've been about for 20 years, okay? And I'm not here to judge anybody off the field, okay? That's not my business, okay? Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Hit us up on the Candy Call in line, 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. And Amber, we got to revisit a story that we talked about earlier regarding Deshaun Watson. We mentioned it in the first hour of our show that there was a grand jury in Brazoria County, which is south of Houston, that was considering charges criminal charges against Deshaun Watson, and we did not receive a statement from the Cleveland Browns, but we did hear from a spokesman from the Cleveland Browns that said that they were aware of the situation. Turns out we have an update on that story. The second grand jury in Texas declines to charge Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson on Thursday after considering an accusation of sexual misconduct. And this is from Brazoria County District Attorney Tom Selleck, and I quote, after a careful and thorough review of the facts and evidence documented in the reports prepared by the Brazoria County Sheriff's Office and the Houston Police Department, as well as hearing testimony from witnesses, the grand jury of Brazoria County has declined to charge Deshaun Watson with any crimes. Accordingly, this matter is closed. Now, this feels like it conflicts with what attorney Tony Busby Uh, the man representing the women in several of the civil suits, as well as filing the criminal charges. It feels like Tony Busby is saying something contrary with his expectation that we'll see more cases brought up on the criminal side and on the civil side. But as first blush, what do you make of this latest development with the Deshaun Watson legal proceedings? 
Well, this one was a bit confusing because we had heard Rusty Hardin, who's Deshaun Watson's attorney, say after there was the nine no bills on the nine criminal complaints uh, in uh, Harris County, that this is the end of the criminal investigations. They've been completed. And apparently there was this 10th criminal complaint out there that had been transferred from, it it seems like, Harris County to Brazoria County because of where the massage actually took place. And so this 10th criminal complaint was out there uh, with some of the reporting. Amy Dash, who's a legal analyst and a reporter, had had put out that she had spoken to Rusty Harden and he had alluded to the fact that he didn't expect that Brazoria County would pursue this after Harris County, as, uh, the result there, and apparently they still did. So it, it seems like Deshaun Watson's legal team maybe, frankly, didn't think that this was going to get as far as a grand jury. It did. Now you have no indictment in this one. So as far as I know, this is all the criminal complaints. I, I mean, I didn't, frankly, know about this 10th one, so I guess there could still be another one we're not aware of. Uh, I feel like at this point that would have been revealed. This has been all the criminal complaints. I don't think at this point that there's anything left in the criminal complaints for him to be essentially charged with. There are some strange laws where there's other things a prosecutor doesn't have to go through a grand jury to charge you with a misdemeanor in in Texas, I believe, under Texas law, whatever. It it seems like basically we've resolved the criminal portion of things with Deshaun Watson for now. But you, you referenced those comments from Tony Busby, who represents the women. And what Busby said is that he expects there to be additional lawsuits in the civil side. He alluded to the fact that he's been contacted by additional women. So this would be new mm-hmm. women who have not previously launched allegations against Deshaun Watson. And he's deciding, according to Tony Busby, whether to take their case, whether they're going to go to another lawyer to take their case in suing Deshaun Watson. He also said he expects there to be more criminal complaints in the future. That's, of course, Tony Busby's position. Now, we do know 10 women filed criminal complaints now in total, and there's, what, 22 pending civil suits. A couple of the women who filed criminal complaints didn't even file civil suits. So certainly there are still more women who could file criminal complaints, those who have pending civil suits against him, I guess new women who may or may not be coming forward, according to Tony Busby. So it's possible we see more lawsuits here in the future and more criminal complaints here in the future, Chris. For now, the criminal portion of of this is over the civil portion of this remains. And that's the question that I wanted to ask you, Amber, because you are a lawyer. You do have that legal background. Does the lack of pursuit by these grand juries in Texas, does that 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 closing of the criminal proceedings, does that factor into what happens next with the civil lawsuits? It indicates to me that there's a lack of evidence here in these cases, which that in and of itself will factor into the lawsuits. But the criminal side of things and the civil side of things are are wholly separate. So just because he wasn't indicted criminally has no bearing on whether he's going to be found liable in the civil suits. But if there's a lack of evidence to bring on the criminal side, there's probably a lack of evidence to bring on the civil side as well. Now, of course, civilly, you have a different standard in court than criminal, where we know criminals beyond a reasonable doubt. But Deshaun, Watson doesn't even get to that high standard. A standard of a grand jury is much, much lower, and that wasn't even a standard that they could meet. In civil court, it's more likely to have occurred than not, but you still have to have evidence in order to prove that. It's by the preponderance of the evidence is what we call it, so it's still evidence-reliant. So it may show that the essentially the positioning of some of the victims is a bit weaker in terms of the evidence. It doesn't mean whether this happened or not. It just means that there's not a ton of evidence. There's 
no video. There's no recording. Maybe it's going to come down to a lot of he said, she said type stuff, which we know is difficult when it comes to lawsuits. Uh, That all remains to be seen. It's all a process. I know Busby said he still has to depose Watson in, I think, 17 of the 22 civil suits, I believe he said. So we're still a long ways to go. And remember, I think people get this confused. Every single one of these lawsuits Everyone's very focused on the fact that there's one attorney representing these women. Every single one of these lawsuits is separate. Every single one. Uh, 20 of them could settle and two of them could go to trial or or all of them could go to trial or none of them could go to trial. Uh, 10 of them could get tossed, but not the others. I mean, there's so Mm -hmm. many factors that can happen here, which is why he has to be deposed separately in every single one of these lawsuits, even though it's the same attorney on the other side deposing him and the same attorneys representing him. So these lawsuits are not related, nor are the criminal complaints and the civil complaints. Yeah, but Amber, the, the, the possibilities that you just outlined in terms of what happens with those 22 pending civil lawsuits is the part that makes it hard to process how the Browns could get to a place where they make the decision to give Deshaun Watson a five-year contract, $230 million fully guaranteed, and to trade six draft picks, including three first-rounders, to the Houston Texans. You don't know what's going to happen in those depositions. You don't know how those cases are going to ultimately end up turning out. And so the optics of this seem awful, and I start to lean from a position of calling the Cleveland Browns aggressive to calling them reckless. The fact that you have something like this as a possibility facing another grand jury in and of itself is just one of those things. I couldn't fathom an organization that's worth billions of dollars making a decision to move forward with this quarterback knowing that those things are still outstanding. So it just feels like there's still a long ways off to the resolution of all of these legal proceedings for Deshaun Watson, which increasingly puts the Cleveland Browns and the NFL in an uncomfortable spot. So – I don't know if these developments push the two sides closer together in terms of being able to come to some settlement agreement with the 22 plaintiffs, but this is an ugly situation that doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon, or at least Tony Busby isn't going to let it go away anytime soon. So it's got to be an increasingly tough spot for the Browns, for Jimmy Haslam, and for Roger Goodell in the NFL to be in. Coming up next, speaking of tough spots, did the Chiefs make the right call? by trading Tyreek Hill. Amber Wilson and I will weigh in on that. ESPN Radio. The latest NFL blockbuster trade, the Kansas City Chiefs are sending Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. A one-handed catch! Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Four years, 120 with 72 guaranteed is outstanding. Tyreek Hill wanted to become the highest paid wide receiver in football. Tyreek Hill is one of the best receivers in all of football. And not just a game breaker down the field. His run after the catch is incredible. ESPN Radio, ESPN Plus, it's Amber Wilson and Chris Candy. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Get at us on the Candy call in line, 888-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. Right now, Amber, we got to bring on ESPN NFL insider Field Yates and ask him about all things NFL. And, of course, Field, we got to start with the blockbuster trade between the Dolphins and the Chiefs that went down yesterday afternoon with Kansas City taking a bevy of draft picks for the services of Tyreek Hill, and then Tyreek Hill deciding that he was going to go down to South Beach. Now, after I heard the comments from Drew Rosenhaus, I feel like the Kansas City Chiefs made the right decision by dealing Tyreek Hill. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, I have a hard time telling that you're wrong, Chris, in the long term. 
I think in the short term, though, it's going to sting a little bit, right? Because the Chiefs have resources to replace Tyreek Hill. We know they've already signed Marquez Valdez-Scantling. We know they've got two picks in the first, second, third, and fourth round of this year's draft, and they have 12 picks in total, tied with Jacksonville for the most. So they have resources to try to replace Tyreek Hill, but that to me feels easier said than done. Tyreek Hill, one of the most unique players in the NFL because of his speed. If you think about that Kansas City offense, how many second reaction plays have we seen over the years where Patrick Mahomes looks like he's going to be sacked, find his way out of pressure, and next thing you know, he's launching the football 50 yards down the field, and Tyreek Hill is uncovered. The next thing you know, it's a seven-point play for Kansas City. So I think in the short term, it's going to sting. In the long term, though, the reality is, despite what people believe, the salary cap is real in the NFL. And because it's real, you can't just keep every single player who makes at the top of his market in terms of his specific position. Patrick Mahomes makes $45 million a year. Travis Kelsey makes $15 million a year. Soon enough, you're going to probably pay Orlando Brown around $20 million a year. You can't just keep everybody when some of those guys are at the very top of their position market. And Devontae Adams definitely seems to have uh, changed that pay, pay scale in terms of receivers in the league. So you mentioned the talent there that Tyreek Hill has. Now he's going to be catching balls from Tua Tungvaloa instead of from Patrick Mahomes. From the Dolphins side of things, they've made a lot of moves this offseason. They brought in protection for Tua. They brought in multiple receivers. They brought in help in the backfield. So now, Field, is this playoffs or bust for Tua at this point? I'm not sure the playoffs or bust is exactly where I'd put it at this point, Amber. Because in some ways, I, I understand the hesitation that people have in regards to this trade for Tyreek Hill. Because there are those that will say, hey, if I had to rank the, the Dolphins in the AFC right now, they still might be, I don't know, 8th, ninth, 10th, which is just as much about the strength of the conference as it is the Dolphins themselves. I mean, I think there are some that believe it could still be third in their own division. We'll see. You know, like, those are the kind of things that will be fodder for us for the next nine months until the conclusion of the upcoming regular season. But what I will say is that not every move that you make has to be, okay, are we a Super Bowl contender, yes or no? Sometimes it's just by getting better. And Miami felt as though they were uniquely equipped right now with their current roster construction and their draft capital to acquire a guy in Tyreek Hill who's going to make not just a ton of money, but like, I mean, like we're talking about an astronomical amount relative to other wide receivers. If you look at the NFL right now, if you look at the three top-paid wide receivers, Tyreek Hill, $30 million a year, one day out of the 28.5, and then DeAndre Hopkins at 27.5 in terms of new money average, the next player is at $20 million. There's this huge, huge gap. So the Dolphins are paying a premium, but they are unquestionably much, much better now compared to where they were 10 days ago. And, Field, I wanted to stay with that contract angle because it felt like a couple of years ago that that DeAndre Hopkins extension was going to be an outlier with him getting paid $27.25 million on average annual value. And in the last month, we're seeing the Devontae Adams contract at $28.5 million a year and now with Tyreek Hill at $30 million a year. Is this where the receiver market is going? Or are these guys considered outlier just due to unique circumstances that we've seen play out this offseason. Yeah, it's funny because if you're the agent for those players, 
you're talking about $30 million per year or 28.5, the figures that I just referenced. If you're an agent for a different wide receiver who hasn't yet gotten paid, say, hey, well, Tyreek Hill was due $18 million this year. So if you factor in all five years, it's not close to $30 million a year. And, oh, by the way, the last year of Tyreek Hill's contract is $45 million. What's the likelihood he actually makes that? So I think sometimes these contracts need to be contextualized. Do I think, though, that we're about to see a bunch of massive wide receiver deals? I do. I don't know that we'll get to 28 or $29 million, but the, the, the pipeline right now of young wideouts who need to get paid is absurd. D.K. Metcalf, Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, Deontay Johnson, Hunter Renfro, Marquise Hollywood Brown, those are guys just from the same draft class, much less others around the NFL who might be a little bit further down in their career. So I think we're about to see a bunch of big, big wide receiver deals, and the money will be growing year over year. But I think what we'll end up seeing is guys whose deals are more like $22 million per year as opposed to 20 or $30 million per year. Field Gate on with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty here on ESPN Radio. So, Field, the Dolphins got better. The Chiefs got a little bit worse, at least for right now. Who has won the NFL offseason so far? The Buccaneers. <laughs> you know, I think for a handful of reasons. First of all, Tom Brady returning is one. Pretty, I think that alone would probably make you close to a winner. But then you multiply that by the fact that their division right now looks absolutely I mean, at least half of the division looks very, very, very weak right now in Atlanta and Carolina. Beyond that, the Saints, I think, will be certainly strong on defense, and Jameis played well enough last year to have them in the mix. But the Buccaneers smear the winners because not only do you get Tom Brady back and you have a winnable division, but the talent that left the NFC that is now playing in the AFC is undeniable, right? I mean, between Russell Wilson at the quarterback position, I mean, not, not the only quarterback trade we have seen so far, but we've had multiple quarterback trades this offseason, the most notable one being Russell Wilson. He goes from Seattle to Denver. That weekend's Seattle. Devontae Adams goes from Green Bay to Las Vegas. That weekend's Green Bay. Other teams at or near the top are going to be losing players as well, right? The Rams, we'll see, but, you know, they've already lost Vaughn Miller. Could, well, I, we don't know on, on, on OBJ. It sounds like he'll probably return. But the NFC as a conference has gotten much weaker. The likelihood of Tom Brady playing in his 11th Super Bowl, I think, has increased over the past two weeks. Phil, thanks for jumping on with us. We'll talk to you again soon, friend. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's ESPN NFL insider Field Yates on ESPN Radio. And, Amber, he was talking about the NFC South. Tomorrow, we're actually going to have Bucks head coach Bruce Arians and Atlanta Falcons head coach Arthur Smith joining the show. So make sure that you guys tune in for that. But coming up next, what was the best overall free agent signing and which team has improved the most this offseason? Amber and I will kick it around. You're listening to ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio and E+. And Amber, after the blockbuster trade the Dolphins pulled off to bring on all-pro wide receiver Tyreek Hill, all eyes are going to be on Tua Tagovailoa, and rightfully so. People want to know, is he the Dolphins' future franchise quarterback? Now, 
Teddy Bridgewater muddied the waters a little bit, no pun intended, when he de- he decided not to disclose the conversation that he had with Mike McDaniel and Chris Greer about what his role would be. But the assumption is that all of the weapons, all of the upgrades on the offensive side of the ball are about trying to get the most out of Tua and making sure that he has the best chance to prove that he can answer the question of whether or not he's a franchise quarterback in the affirmative. So when we start to look at the AFC hierarchy at the quarterback position, let's lock in on the division first. Where would you have Tua in terms of AFC East quarterbacks? AFC East, obviously a weak division once you get below the Buffalo Bills. Fine, I will give Josh Allen the credit here. He is better than Tua Tungvalu. I feel pretty confident saying that, even though I don't fully know what the Dolphins have yet and Tua asks me after this season. I'm not willing to go out on a limb and necessarily say Mac Jones is definitely better than Tua. I know that might sound crazy to you. I'm not willing to. He had a very good rookie campaign. Hold on. One season... One playoff appearance, one Pro Bowl nod. That we, sounds can, good. That, he looked that, bad at the Pro great. Bowl, by the way. He looked terrible. You see him on some well, of those he can field look terrible in the Pro Bowl. Who cares about how he looked? He was there in the Pro Bowl. That's what he matters. He was really good at threading the needle. He could have definitely oh got the ball gosh. in those Here holes during the skill competition. That's now, all I'm saying. Now you're starting to be a homer for the Dolphins, but I'll let you continue. <laughs> But Mac Jones has the best coach, arguably, in NFL history coaching him. I don't know how much of that's Mac Jones. I don't know how much of that's Bill Belichick. He, fine. He had a better season this past season than Tua Tungvaloa. So, fine. If you maybe want to put him a hair above Tua, I'm not going to let you do it with Zach Wilson. Okay. I'm not going to let you do it, Chris Canty. All right. So, I'll I'll be willing to nod out and say that Tua is better than Zach Wilson. Just because we haven't seen enough from Zach Wilson. But when we start looking at the entire conference... Where do you have Tua? Because I called him earlier in the show the 10th best quarterback in the conference at best, and you seem to shake your head. And I said, that's not opinion. That's just fact of the matter. Are you starting to come around on my side, or are you still going to hold fast that Tua could be better than 10th I said in the it might AFC? not be wrong. It just sounds wrong. All of the okay. AFC West is better than Tua, right? Uh, I, I mean, the Colts, their court, obviously Matt Ryan's better than Tua. I'm not putting him necessarily above anybody else in the AFC South. We covered the AFC East. And Joe Burrow, fine. If we're looking at the North, like he's better, obviously. Are we including Deshaun Watson? We're I don't know when we're going to see him. Watson, he fine, counts. he's better. So is Lamar. I, I'm not putting him above, or I'm not going to put Trubisky. <laughs> above him Lamar Jackson and then everybody in the AFC West so I mean yes he's 10th best at best that's what Tua is he's got to prove that he's better ESPN Radio Amber Wilson and Chris Caddy on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus we're presented by Progressive Insurance Get at us on Twitter at ChrisCanny99, at AmberW790, and as always, tap in on the Candy call-in line, 888-ESPN, that's 888-729-3776. And Amber, we got to tee this up for our callers because I want them to chime in on this question as well. What was the best overall free agent signing this offseason? The best overall free agent signing. So where are you at in terms of what team made the most significant or the most impactful free agent move? This is easy to me. And the best free agent signing, we're not talking trades here, but free agent signing to me is Lael Collins going to the Cincinnati Bengals. And all credit apparently goes to Joe Burrow for being a really good recruiter and having Lael Collins over to his house for dinner with some of his teammates and talking him into going there. But I don't even know if that dinner was necessary, Chris, because this is the team that was in the Super Bowl last season with Joe Burrow taking 70 sacks 
in the last 20 games. Like that was out of control, how bad that line was in protecting Joe Burrow. And for them to have gotten all the way to the Super Bowl in the face of that, there was one area of glaring weakness that they needed to upgrade to get over that hump and actually win a ship. And that, of course, was their O-line. They do that with Collins. They did that with multiple other pieces that they brought in on that line as well. Collins gets to reunite with Frank Pollock, who was his O-line coach for the first three seasons of his career and got great production out of him. I love this signing for the Cincinnati Bengals. I wanted him to sign with my Dolphins, and he went to the Bengals instead. Well, listen, you got Teron Armstead. You can't get all of the offensive linemen, Amber. You got to spread the wealth around the National Football League. You, well, that's a fair point. But I love this <laughs> signing, too. You're talking about a player that's in his mid-20s that's got over 70 starts in the National Football League, played at a high level at right tackle for the Dallas Cowboys, can also play some guard if you need him to. But the thing that I like about what the Bengals did, they actually went out and spent money on Alex Kappa, the guard from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they brought in a utility offensive lineman in Ted Karras, although he's getting up there in age. He's still a guy, a valuable piece that you can move along that offensive line. But my most valuable free agent signing, this is going to sound strange because they threw a bunch of money at this guy, Von Miller. And I get it. It's a lot of money. Sticker shock alone would worry you for a guy that's in his early 30s. But I will say this, Amber, I think Von Miller can be the finishing piece for the Buffalo Bills, not just for their defense, but for their team. Because beyond what he brings to the table as a pass rusher, he's bringing a championship pedigree to that locker room. And it's very reminiscent of what we saw from Charles Haley when he left the 49ers after winning multiple Super Bowls in the late 80s, and he went to that Dallas Cowboys team in 92, and they won three Super Bowls in a span of four years. I feel like the Buffalo Bills are on the precipice of being a dynastic team. When you look at their offense, when you look at their defense, both of those units were top five from a year ago. It was the only team in the National Football League that could make that claim. So Josh Allen, we've seen him ascend to being an elite quarterback. We still have to see some improvement on the run game. But defensively, the missing piece was a guy that can consistently rush the quarterback and win in one-on-one situations. They got that in Vaughn Miller adding him to a group of pass rushers that features Greg Rousseau and A.J. Epinesa and Boogie Basham. This is going to be a formidable front. We already know they got the guys on the back end to hold up, but now adding Von Miller to this defensive front is going to take this defense to a whole nother level. So it's a bunch of money. It's over $100 million Mm -hmm. on the contract. Now, in reality, we know that he's not going to play out the entirety of the contract, but it's still a ton of money. But they're paying a premium because Von Miller has Super Bowl rings, plural, that he can show those guys when he's telling them what it takes in order to have success that time of year. He does. This latest one came during a bounce back season, though. So let's hope that this season wasn't just some sort of anomaly and that he's able to continue this trajectory. I thought this was a great signing as well for the Bills. I don't like it money wise necessarily, but this is the rich getting richer. To me, the Bills are the best team in that conference in a in a conference that is improved with just about every team in that conference. The Bills, to me, are still sitting atop the conference. This just makes them that much better. So although Though I don't love how the money looks, I do really like this signing for the Buffalo Bills. So, Amber, that opens it up to the next question, which is the NFL team that improved the most this offseason so far. 
So yesterday I had this conversation with Freddie Coleman and I said the Los Angeles Chargers because I think what they have done on defense there, defense was their weakness, not their offense. The whole reason they didn't make the postseason last season was because of their defense. What they have done on their defense there, I think that's going to be such a remarkably improved Chargers team. But for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to go with the Raiders because I also think they're right there neck and neck in terms of improvement. When you bring in Devontae Adams, also, don't forget, this is going to allow them, I think, to re-sign Derek Carbs. waiting for that contract to break here, but I think he's going to be signing an extension with them anytime. But giving Derek Carr that kind of weapon, the best receiver in the league, a huge upgrade for that offense for the Raiders. I like both of those teams. I don't think that you can consider them the big winner this offseason so far. I think the most improved has to be the Denver Broncos. You're talking about a double-digit loss team from a year ago in a franchise that was going nowhere, even though they had a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. Trading for Russell Wilson was huge. Complete game-changer. And now adding him to an offense that features Tim Patrick, Cortland Sutton, and Jerry Judy at the receiver spots. And then you've got a do-everything running back in Javante Williams. And then on the defensive side, you have got a group that was top five in total yards and top ten in points and he added Randy Gregory as a pass rusher to that unit, I don't know how we couldn't be more bullish on what the Denver Broncos can be. Not to mention, you have a superstar at safety in Justin Simmons, and you have a budding star at corner in Patrick Sertain second. I just feel like this Broncos team needed the right guy at the helm, somebody that had those leadership intangibles at the quarterback position, and Russell Wilson has that in spades, and now he's finally with the functional organization that has shown they know exactly to do what to do when they get a mercenary quarterback the caliber of Russell Wilson. Coming up next, are the Nets the team to beat in the East, and how much pressure is now on Steve Nash? Amber and I weigh in. This is ESPN Radio.